Yeah, good morning, everybody. Like uh, Sarah said, my name is Chris. I'm one of the elders here. Um, excited to get to, to share the message with you. Um, but Sarah pretty much hit it on the head, so that's about uh, the heart of, of the message today. So 11 years ago, I had uh, the spectacular idea of running the LA Marathon. Sounded like a, a good challenge, you know? It's like it's a staple in this city. They had just changed the course. It was going to start at Dodger Stadium, ends at the beach, runs past all these beautiful landmarks, like through downtown, the Walt Disney Concert Hall, Hollywood, Beverly Hills. You end at the beach in Santa Monica. It's like, wow, sounds great. 26 miles? How hard could it possibly be? <laughs> sounds pretty epic. You know, and it's actually downhill, right? I mean, it's like, what else could you ask for? You know, I found a training, pa- a training plan. I found a buddy who was equally crazy as me to, to sign up and, and started getting after it. Did some training. I started four months ahead of time. Uh, and as I was going through it, you know, some days were, were easier than others, had some ups and downs. You know, some days my desire was just sky high, felt like, felt lighter than air as I was running. Some long runs were like unbearable, no doubt. And, and my body felt like mush, right? So that's the ebbs and flows there. But uh, and did train in the rain, probably only once. I mean, it is Los Angeles. But uh, yeah, so arrived at race day, you know, four months later. It's, this is in March. It was a nervous wreck, right? But I was feeling confident. I was like, I know that I did the training, so I can do this. And it was, you know, quite the day once I started. I couldn't have started any higher, right? Dodger Stadium, tens of thousands of people. I mean, it's a, it's a mass of people. Everybody's amped up, geared up, and ready to go. My adrenaline pumping, aspirations soaring. And the setting, perfect. So the first three or four miles, they flew by. I was riding high still. I was like, this is going to be a piece of cake. Around mile seven, I had to stop and use the restroom, and I was like, there was a line, and I started like getting tight, and I was just like, oh dear, how, long, how am I going to get started again? Like, this is concerning. I get back going again. Okay, halfway mark, about two hours in, my confidence waned significantly. I'm just like, oh man, two hours already, and I got, I'm only halfway done? My goodness. All the nervous energy gone, adrenaline well passed. Do I really want to do this? All those landmarks that I said that sounded so enticing before, like they just blend in now. They're just like, it doesn't, I don't, everything just looks like the street. It's all I see. And then I really hit rock bottom at about mile 20, three hours in. I start to cramp. Clearly hadn't taken in enough water, just like miserable. And I was like, six miles. I gotta go that much farther? Things are looking bleak. I start walking. I desperately didn't wanna do that because you know what? Six miles of walking sounds unbearable. But at this point, I was farther away from the starting line and far closer to the finish line. So it's like, not gonna turn around. The end was attainable. So I guess I'll keep going. Later, who knows how long it was at this point, because I'm probably just doing this like hop wobble thing at this point. But I see the beach. The beach is in view. I'm like, okay, I think I can do it. 
The last mile, though, just agonizing. Every step, the body is screaming, but now I'm so close, almost there. And somehow, some way, I do make it. Not sure how, but I cross the finish line. And in this post-race emotion, I ask myself, I'm like, was it worth it? I mean, I'm pretty, like, punished. Uh, I mean, it was a couple days afterwards, I was just feeling exhausted. I was empty, right? But there certainly was, like, a pleasure and satisfaction of knowing I, I made it to the end. So this story came to mind for me uh, as I was preparing to preach today because it's similar to what Paul is telling the Philippians. <clears throat> Except that the reality for Paul is that... Uh, those ups and downs are similar to kind of what I experienced in a microcosm, but the end, the goal of Jesus is infinitely greater than finishing a silly little race. And so while the intensity and the aim of our desires will ebb and flow like-minded and our circumstances will change, our goal, our end, our reward is the glory of Jesus So today we're going to take a look at the inner life of Paul, and he will be our example for what God does in us as we journey towards Christ. And I hope we're going to be encouraged and challenged to answer the question, is Jesus our end? And do we want Jesus more than anything else? So if you want to follow along with me, we're going to read uh, Philippians, continuing our journey. As Sarah said, uh, it's Philippians 1, verses uh, 18b, if you remember Brad's joke last week, 18b through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is God's word. So the first aspect of the passage I want us to see is that while we are still on this earth, in these bodies, we all have some sort of chains. We all experience suffering in this life. And sadly, due to the fall, like we talked about earlier this year in Genesis, right, in the origins of sorrow, hardship is a reality, and so today, to, to be specific, we're going to consider chains, that, like Paul is talking about here, to be these hard things that come against us in life, that cause us trouble. 
And this could look like a physical ailment. This could look like a broken or hurtful relationship with a parent. It could be persecution um, from coworkers because of your faith. So these chains, right, they hold us back. They get in the way. They are a hindrance, an obstacle. They make this life of being a disciple harder. Being faithful to Christ and his teachings, it looks so much more difficult when we are afflicted by chains. They are heavy. They prevent progress towards the goal. And it's hard to imagine physical chains because here in LA, we don't interact regularly with like prisons or dungeons. But this was Paul's reality. So as we read a few weeks ago in Acts 16, right, Paul and Silas literally were put in chains in the Philippi jail, right? The text specifically says, they put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So I'm 99% sure last time I preached, I did the same thing. I was like, what's, a, what's stocks? I asked you guys last, I was like, what's, a, what's like a wheat look like? So I'm doing the same thing here. And I'm saving you the, the trouble of being embarrassed that you don't know another biblical reference. So here you go. So stocks, right? So it's these things that, that are on their feet. So you literally like cannot move. And so again, in, in this kind of passage, right? In this story, we're seeing that uh, the stocks are literally outright opposition to proclaiming the gospel in Philippi. Right? Paul and Silas were thrown in jail. They could not be around the public to continue the mission of the gospel. And that reality, unfortunately, is continuing to follow Paul. Right? So Paul, as he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, where Paul and Silas were in jail, Paul is now under house arrest in Rome. He's still in chains. The mission appears to still be hindered and put on hold, right? Paul's missionary thrust is opposed. The most prolific ambassador for the gospel, Paul, right? His, his physical progress is stunted by these chains. And so brief aside on these chains, right, and the source of where our chains come from. You know, in this life, there is cosmic opposition to the kingdom of God. Right? Satan and his demons, they're, they're real. Right? We, they are at work in this world. And whether we give them recognition or not, that is a reality we have to understand and we do experience actual opposition in the spiritual realm. Right? That does not mean that every chain, every hard thing that we interact with is like overtly evil, but I do want to make sure we understand that we are in a, in a war there is a physical battle, but there's also a spiritual battle as well. And we cannot discount that aspect of the world we live in. And so I want you to think about chains as this way. Have you ever like worked out using ankle weights or like gone on a run with like a weight vest? Or what about riding your bike into the wind? Like if you've ever ridden down Bayona Creek in the afternoon when like the breeze picks up, you literally don't feel like you're moving at all. It is like a struggle, um, especially if it's at the end of a long bike ride. It's like every step or every pedal just feels like so difficult. 
Like the normal movement of just like, you know, moving your, your leg feels impossible. Simple tasks take immense effort when chains are involved. And so in light of all that, I want you to just pause for a second. I want you to just think for a moment. What are the practical or the physical or the metaphorical chains that oppose you proclaiming the gospel in this city? So just think about that for a second. I know the, the question's up there. We're not gonna, sometimes we, we talk about it out loud, but just, just think about that for the second. What are the practical, physical, or metaphorical chains that oppose you in proclaiming the gospel in this city? And as you think about that, let me give you some, some, some potentials. Is it, is it busyness? With kids, a career, a mortgage to pay, bills piling up? How could I possibly find time to make the gospel central in my life? Is it the politics of this city? You might think, well, I don't agree with the leaders or with the direction of where this city is going. My faith is never gonna be fit in or accepted here in this city, so I'm, I'm not, just not gonna interact with my faith in this city. Is it the violence in this city? It's not safe. I need to stay inside the lines. Keep me and my family safe. I'm not going to step out. So these realities oppose the gospel in our city, and they bring weight against us. They are very real and present in our everyday life. But let me implicate our hearts now a little bit deeper because I know for me the answer to that question, and I wonder if also maybe for you, is it the fear of man? I know I worry about the relational consequences that will come from me proclaiming Christ in my relationships, whether that's in the office, to my neighbors, to my family. I don't wanna be the weird guy, the one who believes in like all that. So fear, sadly, is the reality for me. So I ask you to ponder that uh, this week. And in light of that, what are your posture towards chains? Do the chains embolden you? Right, is that kind of that challenge, like really like puff you up and like, oh, I gotta like fight against these chains, kind of like that exercise example? Or do the chains make you cower? How do we respond? And I think Paul gives us an answer here. Paul is being honest about his concerns, but he wants to not be ashamed of the gospel. He doesn't want to cower when the time comes, even if that means he literally has to preach in chains in front of Caesar. Paul's hope is this. We see in verse 20, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I think this is the crux of our life of faith, that we're honest with our fear, but yet we continue on, kind of like Sarah showed the kids. 
The next thing I want us to see in this passage is the, the juxtaposition to our chains and our circumstances is that we also have hopes and dreams and desires to see the gospel advanced in us and through us and in our children and that we would see friends and families and neighbors and coworkers come to know Jesus. And since Paul, the writer of our text today, I want to understand his life and kind of where his hopes and and dreams and desires come from. So throughout his ministry, which at this point has been like 20 to 30 years, right? Like a long time of faithful work in the gospel. Preaching in Rome, in some sense, has kind of been this like pinnacle for him. His entire life has seemingly built towards this, to preach the gospel in Rome, he has desired to proclaim the gospel in the halls of power, right? As we, uh, if you look back in Acts 9, right, in, in Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, um, that's when he came to faith, right, in Christ, and he was struck blind, right? And in verse 15 specifically, when he was healed of his blindness, the text tells us that Jesus calls Paul his chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings, So Rome, the physical city itself, it's the center of the Gentile kingdom. And now, in our text today, Paul is there, physically, in Rome. He's made it. This was it, right? This is what he had been building towards. Yet, he's in chains, under house arrest. He's awaiting Caesar's timeline, not his own. And maybe he'll get to publicly proclaim Christ? It's uncertain. Can you imagine this? What must Paul be feeling? 20 to 30 years of striving and desiring for this end? And here he is, stuck in a house. I think we are similar to Paul in this. I believe most of us actually desire to do something great for God. We want to see that our lives have purpose and meaning, and we want to make a difference in the world. And yet so often, I think God accomplishes these hearts' desires in a far different way than we ever planned. Usually this different way involves suffering, or sanctification, sharpening, or change which obviously would never be the path that we would choose for ourselves because it's hard. Just like Paul, I can't imagine when he was initially called on that road to Damascus and as he started you know, preaching the gospel locally, that he knew his life and getting to Rome would involve three shipwrecks, constant and repeated beatings and floggings, literally being in jail, and now to get there and be under house arrest. Yet, God, in his sovereignty, fulfills his purposes in us for God's greater good and ours. This also reminds me of the movie Mr. Holland's Opus. Sounds like some of you have seen it. It's one of Katie's favorites. It's a story about a man 
who desires to use his musical talents to bless the world with a wonderful symphony. And so he takes a job as a music teacher at a local high school because he thinks that's going to give him more time to work on his symphony. But however, like all this life happens, right? He ends up finding less and less time to work on his symphony, right? He has a son who ends up being deaf. He ends up starting a marching band at the the request of the, the football coach. He spends countless after school hours with his students investing in them. He teaches them to appreciate the beauty of music and life. And he does this, right, not through uh, classical music, right? He uses it through rock and roll, marching band type music, pop, right? He's changing the lives of his students through the music with the time that he spent with them. He believes in them when no one else does. Sounds pretty meaningful, right? Lives changed. But Mr. Holland doesn't still see it that way. And the movie comes to a climax as he's packing up his classroom because he's being forced to retire. No more money for the music program. And he still has this nagging desire and tinge of regret that his symphony was never polished, was never performed. He didn't make it. He's not famous. He never accomplished his desire as he originally thought. So again, he's he's finishing packing up his classroom. He he heads to the auditorium because he hears this ruckus. And he's like, oh, what are these kids doing with the sound system now? But as he enters those double doors, he is met with a flood of applause. Because every seat is filled with past students and friends whose lives were changed because of him. Because of his devotion and his love of music, that lived out practically in the everyday stuff of life, they came to celebrate and honor his presence in their lives. I want us to see that he brought his love of music, his desire to create this symphony, but it played out in the lives of others. He did change the world. He did change the life of these students through his passion. It didn't look like he originally thought, But the end was the same. He meaningfully changed the lives of all these people. And I argue that would be his original desire, was to change people's lives, to make a difference. The skills were similar, right? Music was the backdrop of those interactions. Yet it was other aspects of his character that brought about the impact. And the most lovely part, the movie concludes with many of these former students standing on stage playing his symphony with him conducting. And I think it's such a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness to work out his plans and his purposes in us and through us. God takes our desires and through our circumstances, he transforms them and we see them lived out in ways we could never imagine. I think that's part of the excitement of walking a life with Christ. We don't know how he's going to do it in us, but we know that he will do it in us, which is such good news, right? Brad reminded us last week, the gospel is not ours. It's his, and we get to participate 
in his coming kingdom here on earth. And let me be transparent with you about my own heart in the process of of preparing this message today. You know, it's a fairly busy season for me. I've got a full-time job, a wife, two kids. We lead an MC. I'm an elder here. And I'm taking two classes at seminary. Maybe that was a bad choice this semester, but we'll see. And so, but I was like, okay, I'm going to preach. It's going to be right at the beginning of the the term. I'm going to plan this all out. I got, I got it, I got it. But after about four or five hours of initial investment, I met with the cohort, Brad and Casey, and we determined I was not on the right path. Where I was heading was encouraging and accurate and helpful, but it was not the text. And let me tell you, church, it really sent me into a tailspin. I was panicked about finding the time to finish preparing for you all. I was anxious about my ability to write a good message at all. I was feeling inadequate. It's like, can I even do this? Do I even fit the bill? And so what started as this desire to care well for you all, to encourage you, and I hope is encouraging today, God is the one who actually ministered to my own heart, right? I had to come face to face with my desire to just get it done. The message had become just a task, another thing to check off my to-do list. And having to come see him face to face, that his desire is equally for me as part of this body too. My desire for a powerful message was turned upside down because I was the one most changed. I came face to face with my own motivations, right? Of wanting to accomplish tasks, of looking smart, looking that I know what I'm doing. But instead, God brought me face to face with himself. Isn't that good news? That God desires us and pursues us to accomplish the glory of Jesus. So how about you? What are your hopes and dreams for the gospel? To see your parents come to faith? That your neighborhood in this city would be transformed by your life on mission? That the houseless in our city would find hope? That your kids would come to know Jesus? I want you to know that God hears those desires. He sees you. We don't always know how God's gonna work to bring about his kingdom, because there's still a lot of mystery in our life with Christ. But I want to encourage us today that despite our chains, despite our unfilled desires, our entire existence belongs to Jesus. And that means we seek to live fruitful lives as a result. Let's see what Paul says about this, because to me, it seems like Paul is experiencing this same tension that we're talking about. So verses 22, he says, yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Church, I want us to hear that. He says it is more necessary 
for Paul to remain, to keep walking a life of faith, to be an encouragement, to be one who points towards Jesus. I think we need to receive these words today. We talk about God's mission a lot in our church, and it's because we believe it's central to our identity as disciples. To the point, right, one of our primary uh, structures, right, is called a missional community. And I think Paul is getting at that here. While it is better to be with Christ, when we come to faith in Christ, we don't get whisked away into heaven. We're still here. God has a better plan for us, and that's to stay. Because he has purpose for us. We get to play a part in the mission of God to the world. We, this church, this body, we are part of Christ's family. We all have a part to play to bring about the glory of Jesus. And it's because of Jesus' surpassing greatness, because of the chains that he bore, right, we are set free. We are alive in Christ. And that should bring us joy, church. And what do we make of that? Paul tells us he will continue with all of you so that our progress and joy in the faith would grow. That is is Paul's end. We remain. We move forward toward joy in our faith in Christ. So we keep moving despite the chains. We keep pressing on to the goal despite that internal disappointment of seemingly unmet desires. Why? Because of Jesus. Paul's singular passion and desire for Christ is what drives him. He trusts that whether he is tortured in Rome, whether he dies in a prison cell, or proclaims the gospel eloquently in front of Caesar, that Jesus will be glorified. And we, this church, we can do the same. So hear me. This is not a call to put on a happy face amid trials. I'm not proclaiming a return to stoicism, to stuffing our feelings, to being unaware of our emotions and to simply soldier on. No. This is a call to Jesus himself, the person of Christ, the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Our vision and our hope for our church this year is that we would have joy and contentment and satisfaction in Christ alone. In our uh, our text, imperial power can't stop the gospel. As great and as powerful as Caesar and Rome was, the gospel spread just like the chains that we see in our city might feel like the gospel is not spreading, just like our own desires may not always be fulfilled in how we want it, the gospel is spreading. Just because we experience suffering, still, the gospel is spreading because Jesus is the one who's doing the work. So why do we continue? We continue because our life is not about us. 
my life, not about me. This life is about God's story, his hope, and his plan for restoring creation. That's why Jesus came, to redeem and fully restore all the broken things, all that sorrow that we experience, right? God is coming back. And for some beautiful reason, God chose us to participate with him in that plan. We were made, again, to do this life together. We're bounded together in Christ as part of his body. And may he be our aim, our savior. Let us progress toward him together as we grow in our joy and glory together in the surpassing greatness of our risen Lord. So as we finish this morning, I'm going to read a quote uh, from Elizabeth Elliot. She was a, a missionary uh, in Ecuador in the 50s, and her, some of you might know the story. Her wife was, or pardon me, her husband was killed uh, with some other missionaries uh, in the remote jungles of Ecuador as they were starting their uh, missionary work there. And after his death, instead of renouncing these people or, or quitting the work, she actually chose to go back into the jungle with a desire to see these people know the love of Christ through what had happened. And in light of that life story, she said this, there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. So church, the good news is, is despite what happens in this life, even if we die, Christ's death and resurrection define our life above all else. And in light of that, we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Because God's glory is our end and our aim. Regardless of what comes, whatever chains, whatever disappointments, his glory will abound in us and through us. And so we will respond with worship because Jesus is greater than our chains. He's better than our desires, and he is worthy of all of our glory. So may this allow us to grow in joy, remembering that our lives are not just for us. Right, the opposition we face, the challenges and the suffering we persevere through, they bring glory to Jesus, and they shine his light in this dark world. This is the upside-down kingdom, right? That our suffering, our pain, actually brings joy. Not only to us, but those around us. Because of Jesus, he is just that good. So now, how do we physically respond here this morning in this room? We're gonna now take communion and go to the table. We have bread and juice in the back. Uh, and this morning, I want you to remember this, that Jesus, the glorified one, he is worth it. He is worth it all. So I want you to celebrate that together. And so what that looks like here in our church is I ask that you would gather in groups of three or four. And this morning specifically, I would ask that you would confess your need of something specific from Jesus, whether that's relief from chains, confess something that's holding you back 
in your life with Christ or to speak your desires honestly to him. So do that as a group and then we will celebrate that Christ is sufficient for you as you take the bread and the juice. So let me pray for us and then again go in groups and then we'll close with another song. Jesus, I thank you so much that you came to seek and to save and redeem all the brokenness. Thank you for this body here in Culver City. And I pray that we would grow in our joy Lord, knowing that you are sufficient. So may we remember that now as we go to the table. Amen.